goals, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. Code Pink by MS Revolution. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., and KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston. I'm Ali, the coordinator of the China's Not Our Enemy campaign to counter the U.S. government and Pentagon aggression on China. This time in history, we need cooperation with China through the huge concerns of pandemics, climate change, and the growing global inequality. Instead of war, we need care and love for humanity, dedication to mutual respect, and cooperation to create world peace. But before we dive in and begin to talk about what's happening in Congress in Taiwan, I wanted to share with you an excerpt from our emergency rally for Ukraine that happened this past weekend on Saturday, February 26th. This online anti-war rally was organized by Code Pink, Stop the War Coalition, and the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament and the Node to NATO Network. For more information on Ukraine, the coalition, and past and future events, please visit peaceinukraine.org. We are people who have come together in the past to oppose the expansion of NATO. And now we come together under a very different circumstance. In fact, when we began to organize this, Uh, It was before the Russian invasion when we were desperately seeking a way that we could come together uh, to stop this from happening. And now here we are in a situation where our uh, number one concern is for the civilians of Ukraine who are facing the violence, facing tremendous displacement, tremendous suffering. Um, We're also uh, facing a situation where Uh, We are calling for at least Code Pink because um, we're going to have different opinions on this gathering, which is fine. Uh, We are calling for an immediate ceasefire withdrawal of troops from uh, Ukraine and an immediate search for negotiations, a way to stop this. Uh, And we are worried that our own governments, like in the U.S., are instead... Um, fanning the flames by sending more troops into the region, sending more weapons into the region, and calling for sanctions that will uh, not only harm the ordinary citizens of Russia, but um, people all over the region, including all of Europe and, and perhaps globally. So we are in a need for a global peace community, which we are uh, why we have called this Uh, We need the ideas of the speakers. Uh, We need the uh, energy and commitment of people around the world to say how we can, how can we come together? We know already we are losing uh, uh, people inside Ukraine. Uh, We are losing the uh, efforts that we have had towards uh, stopping the expansion of NATO uh, and stopping the 
uh, expansion of militarism. And so uh, it is up to us, the peace people around the world, to find a way to insert ourselves in this crisis. Um, but we are very delighted that we can start out with somebody who uh, is always there for us to uh, educate us about what is happening in the world. Um, Vijay Prashad, who is a, a writer, an intellectual, a speaker, uh, somebody who runs the group Tricontinental, which is a place to get information uh, about all of these global events. But Vijay, we're so glad you can start us out uh, with your analysis of where we are and what we as a global peace movement can be doing. Thank you so much, Vijay. Thanks a lot, Medea. It's an honor to be here. Uh, it's a difficult day, but it's been a difficult day for my entire life. Uh, peace is a priority, no doubt about that. War is hideous, it's never the answer. Um, the war in Ukraine has focused uh, attention of a lot of people because these are nuclear armed countries facing off against each other. Very dangerous moment. But let's not forget that on the same day that Mr. Putin sent troops into Ukraine, the bombing continued in Syria, in Yemen, uh, the occupation of the Palestinians continued and so on. War is never the answer. I take my lesson from Rosa Luxemburg, who said, in peacetime, workers of the world unite. In wartime, workers are made to slit each other's throats. War is never good for the poor. War is never good for ordinary people. We must remember that war is an abomination. Nonetheless, let us also put on the table that there are some extraordinary events that accelerated us to this point. Yes, the Russians must withdraw from Ukraine. Yes, that is true. On the other hand, NATO has been aggressively moving eastward. NATO has been accelerating a conflict within Ukraine, a plurinational country, exaggerating differences between people, empowering ultra-nationalist Ukrainians, neo-fascists, creating an ethnic cleansing situation in eastern Ukraine. Not only oppression of Russian-speaking people in the Donbass, but also Ukrainian-speaking people who have been moving uh, toward Kiev and other places. This is intolerable, what has been done to Ukraine. Ukraine has become the center point of a, a proxy battle between the United States, its NATO allies, and the Russians. That's that's just not tolerable. We should not allow that to stand. Um, yes, it's true. There will be a lot of focus in this moment on the Russian troops in Ukraine. And I must say a very brave young communist deputy in the Duma today said he voted for autonomy of the provinces in the Donbass because he worried about the shelling in the Donbass. He said, I voted to stop the shelling in the Donbass, not to bomb Kiev. This is important. Negotiation must be at the center point. The parties must return to the table. There's no other option. Questions of security guarantees have to be there. Security guarantees for Russia, fine, but also security guarantees for Ukraine. Also must be on the table the question of ethno-nationalism. Look, this is not just a question of Ukraine. It's a problem across Eastern Europe. It's a problem in India. The problem of reducing citizenship to ethnicity and so on. We must not allow this to happen. We must argue for 
plurinational citizenship uh, that should have been on the table in Ukraine. The ethnic cleansing in the eastern part was intolerable. The violence there was intolerable. This conflict was accelerated. There is no excuse for it, but it was accelerated. And let not those who accelerated this conflict now pretend to be the peacemakers. There is no peacemaker in Washington. There is no peacemaker in Brussels. They accelerated the conflict. They will refuse now to properly negotiate, find a path down from war to what is absolutely necessary for people, which is peace. There is no substitute for peace. There is none. Yes, of course, take up the issues that are salient, but there's no substitute for peace. This is not just about the question of Russia, my friends. It's also the question of China. Um, the accelerated conflict that's taking place in the South China Sea, intolerable. If you must, you should see the readout between Wang Yi, the foreign minister of China, and Sergei Lavrov, uh, the foreign minister of, of Russia, in which Wang Yi says that we have to get out of the Cold War mentality. We must get out of the Cold War mentality, disband NATO, send the Russian forces back to Russia, end this NATO mentality, end this approach um, to our conflicts, which are real, end this approach to our conflicts by bringing out the gun first, talk first. Don't bring out the gun. We don't need more lives lost on futile wars, whether it's in Ukraine or in Yemen. Thanks a lot. You are listening to Code Pink's Medea Benjamin, followed by Vijay Prashad, the emergency rally for Ukraine this past weekend. We start this week's show off with some good news. Updates about the Department of Justice's China Initiative. Finally, after pushback from civil rights groups, members of Congress, and academics across the country, all of who have criticized the program for racial profiling, the China Initiative was repealed after three years in operation. We stand in solidarity with the academics, including Gong Chen, Ong Ming Hu, and Ching Wong, whose lives, careers, and families were turned upside down by these charges, all of which were eventually dropped. While this is a win for us advocates working on the U.S.-China cooperation question and on the rise in anti-Asian hate in America, we now pivot our attention to the China legislation being pushed through the House and Senate at the moment. Make It in America, aka the United States Innovation and Competition Act, and the House Companion, the America Competes Act, both of which funnel additional billions into an over, already overinflated military budget and use similar language and provisions to raise suspicion about those of Chinese descent, especially in the science and technology sectors as spies for the Chinese state. We here at Code Pink are working to get our members of Congress to fight the provisions that encourage militarization and xenophobia as the two companion bills are reconciled through a conference committee made up of senators and representatives voted through both houses, and then land on the president's desk to be signed into law. We are already starting to hear from members of Congress that support our message and hope to help ratchet down the aggression. So thank you to our supporters and volunteers for making that possible. For more information on our action, you can visit www.codepink.org innovation. So let's dive a little deeper into what these companion bills actually look like and what the tangible impacts are and what we can do moving forward.
Last June, the Innovation and Competition Act was passed with bipartisan support in the Senate. This bill took an aggressive warlike stance against China, one that is likely to escalate tensions and increase the likelihood of either an accidental or intentional combat. By increasing the military budget, military posturing, troop deployment, military exercises, and weapon sales to countries around China and the Indo-Pacific. It also, this bill also explicitly pits American innovation and competitiveness as a zero-sum game against China's. The America Competes Act was passed quietly in the House, their and it was their answer to the Innovation and Competition Act. In the context of a semiconductor shortage, both bills addressed semiconductor research, competition with China, uh, building resilient supply chains, and revitalizing American manufacturing and production. Semiconductors, or chips, are used in thousands of products, from computers to smartphones, appliances, medical equipment, military equipment, to even cars. So they're really, really important. These bills also increase military spending. And although the linchpin of competes is economic and manufacturing investment, the bill is framed as a way to combat or outcompete China. This zero-sum approach, i.e. the U.S. wins in innovating in manufacturing when the Chinese lose, feels an awful lot like the Cold War rhetoric we saw in the 20th century. Look at how national security and competition forms the messaging around the competes bill, with some Republicans arguing this bill doesn't go far enough militarily. Yet the military and Department of Defense are direct beneficiaries of this bill. The DOD receives $2 billion to establish private-public partnerships to incentivize the formation of one or more consortia to ensure the development and production of microelectronics, and authorizes 2012 $225 million over five years to the State Department uh, for international military education and training programs. And so just for a little bit of context, the U.S. spent about $778 billion U.S. dollars on its military in 2020. That's more than the next 11 countries' military budgets combined in the same year. So that's like a lot of money. <laughs> In terms of other policies, in academia, the Department of Justice's China's initiative was designed to crack down on intellectual theft and espionage within U.S. universities. This initiative was created by the Trump administration and carried on under Biden. There's no clear definition of what would constitute a case, and details aren't clear. Most researchers and academics who have been charged or investigated have been accused of concealing ties with China. Civil rights groups have been concerned since the start of this, and members of Congress and academics from universities across the U.S. are calling for its abolition, criticizing it for racially profiling academics. There have also been reports of U.S. consular offices vetting Chinese gradu graduate students for, while they were trying to obtain visas to attend U.S. universities. This follows from a general concern that young Chinese people, including students studying at American University, are these are being used as weapons by the Chinese state to undermine US power and interests or commit espionage, as well as fears of the Chinese Communist Party's influence on campus. These politics deter academic exchange, again, perpetuating a zero-sum attitude in research and scientific discovery. As though research can't produce, as though researchers can't produce research and create innovations that benefit both countries. 
And more importantly, these politics policies dehumanize Chinese people as mere tools of the CCP and fuel racist suspicion and racial profiling. Academics being targeted are being targeted due to their ethnicity or nationality, with MIT technology review showing that 88% of the individuals charged under the China initiative have been academics and scientists of Chinese heritage. So that's like an overwhelming majority. Also media and information is another way that aggression is carried out from the way that we frame China and COVID discourse to the misinformation on the Chinese state. But this isn't always flat out aggression. Sometimes it's a space where microaggressions happen. For instance, where racial, racist stereotypes of Chinese people are perpetuated. These images and tropes can be exploited when and amplified when vilifying Chinese people through the refusal to see Chinese people as individuals with our own dreams, aspirations, and desires, rather portraying Chinese people in China as two-dimensional caricatures with little to no nuance. Thankfully, as I said at the beginning of the show, the China Initiative was repealed last week. However, Unfortunately, similar language and provisions have been included in both the Innovation and Competition Act as well as America Competes. This has allowed the Biden administration to distance themselves from the Trump administration's policies and, while in practice relying on the same tired tropes. We at Code Pink are concerned because the impacts of these policies and language are felt domestically by Chinese Americans, Chinese nationals in America, and people who look Chinese. In other words, ordinary people. Recently, the San Francisco police reported a 567% increase in anti-Asian hate crimes reported in 2021 from 2020 in San Francisco. And the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism reported a 339% increase in anti-Asian hate crimes reported. So when we start to understand these processes, I think the connection with the exclusion of other racial and ethnic groups becomes a lot clearer because it's not just unique to Chinese experience or America's, Chinese treat, America's treatment of Chinese people. If we think about the horrible detention centers at the US-Mexico border, how the war on drugs was fueled by racist fear-mongering, post 9-11 Islamophobia, and all the violence against black and brown people that have resulted as the as from these sentiments and policy choices, racism is built into America's foundations. The next thing we need to do is challenge the narrative that China is a looming threat to the US, beginning with dismantling this false idea that everything is binary. In, according to the World Bank, um, in 2020, China had about 1.4 billion people and the US had 3 uh, 329.5 million people. That's like a lot of people, right? Even in this space today at kernels compared to that, I think like there's immense diversity even within us. So challenging China as a threat begins challenging that unitary perception and also challenging that global power is a zero sum situation and that multipolar world is inherently bad. This sort of perception stymies opportunities for cooperation and encourages aggressive, aggressive hawkish foreign policy. It's the narrative that there are two diametrically opposing types of government, like I talked about earlier. It misdirects our attention away from the root causes of major and existential problems such as COVID. When we first heard about COVID in the Western world, there was a tendency to sort of dismiss it as 
you know, a non-autocratic Western states would be sort of like immune to it. Then we continue to blame China for failure to control the virus or that it manufactured the virus and had a lab leak even two years later when the domestic situation where COVID is killing Americans at a far higher rate than any other West, uh, wealthy nation is related to American policy failure and poor leadership. The threat is thus not concentrated in a foreign state power but actually also within domestic decision-making, which I think is really empowering because we as American citizens have influence in this domain and can change this reality. This can begin with pressuring our representatives to stop hawkish bills from passing through the Senate and the House, particularly ones that are being touted as pandemic recovery and national security, and instead endorse bills that would actually benefit the people, such as Build Back Better. Instead, foreign policy should be striving towards common goals. We are facing huge globally existential problems with a pandemic, massive vaccine inequalities, global supply chain issues, looming global climate crisis, and increasing global uh, inequality. These issues are no longer limited to a single geographical area. In increased globalized and interconnected world, separatism is no longer a viable option. From economics alone, China's economy is too deeply integrated into the global economy as both an exporter and importer, consumer and producer. For countries outside of the US, prosperity largely depends on, you know, exports and good relations with both countries. As long as great powers compete, conflicts becomes the status quo. It exists perpetually. Aggression and war are bad for everyone. No one wins. Research coming out of a joint study at Durham University and Lancaster University, for instance, showed that the U.S. military is one of the largest climate polluters in history, consuming more liquid fuels and emitting more CO2 than most countries. And military budgets are already overinflated. In 2020, global military spending reached an all-time high at $2 trillion U.S. dollars. Despite the outbreak of COVID, downturn of global GDP, increased job insecurity, and increasing climate crisis, workers in the world lost about $3.7 trillion in earnings during the pandemic. I mean, that's so much money. I don't think any one individual can conceptualize that much money. Like, I can't. Can you? So diplomacy and multilateral cooperation are then key to addressing these issues and de-escalating efforts. As a Lowy Institute article pointed out, China was once cast as the villain of a global climate crisis and was widely blamed for the collapse of negotiations at the summit in Copenhagen in 2009, but now has become an active participant in climate diplomacy. And frameworks already exist for bilateral and mutual beneficially mutually beneficial cooperation collaboration, such as the UN's Our Common Agenda, the Paris Agreement, and the Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, which China has been a vocal advocate for in the international arena. Created within the UN General Assembly framework, SDGs are sometimes seen as a non-Western agenda with development perceived, I would argue, incorrectly as not relevant to Western countries. But, you know, 70 countries created the SDGs. So it was an incredibly participatory and democratic process in creating. But the U.S. has done little to meaningfully engage with this agenda that has a high-level support from China and other global South countries, 
So beyond diplomacy and high-level issues, there's potential for cultural and academic exchange as well. Um, and yet these hawkish anti-China policy alienates young people in this sort of collaboration and cooperation, including Chinese nationals in the US like students and researchers. And to limit such exchanges, I think would be a disservice to both countries. So when we're mobilizing for shared issues, including things like labor rights, human rights, women's rights, climate justice, disarmament, and nuclear non-proliferation, I think it's crucial that we don't reproduce the discourse that these are uniquely Chinese problems due to some inherent or fundamental characteristic of Chinese people, culture, and government systems. In particular, resisting the Orient Orientalist tradition that the US is the only one who can fix these problems or save Chinese people. Mia Shuang Li, a research associate at the Paul Tsai China Center of Yale Law School, says in an AJ Plus video, we need to see these as real issues rather than a dystopian cautionary tale. The cooperation I have been discussing wouldn't be possible if our foreign policy continues to pit manufacturing and growth as a winner-takes-all competition between China and the U.S. To our listeners, for more information on our action on the innovation and competition bills, as well as the China is Not Our Enemy campaign, you can visit our website at www.codepink.org China or at China Not Enemy on Twitter. You are listening to Code Pink Radio, coming to you through Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington, D.C., WBAI in New York City, and KPFT in Houston. We will be back after this break with KJ No and Colonel Ann Wright to better understand the Taiwan issue and how the U.S. can avoid war with China over Taiwan. Shen 谁是朋友 
朝鲜发展核武就被认为是罪。谁的奴性是违背支配的颠倒是非？是我们把自卫视为威胁，把威胁视为慈悲。是谁不知不觉的在重复戈佩尔所起草的流言蜚语的同时，说别人被洗脑，并对用着坚如铁的毅力、英勇的旗，驱逐侵略者的人民，无理的怀有敌意。Listening to "Rumors and Slanders" by Taiwanese rapper Zhang Yu. In his song, Zhang Yu examines the rumors and slander we've been exposed to, and questions the hypocrisy of these narratives, including what is righteous, who are friends, and who are enemies. With conflict on the front of our minds with what's happening in Ukraine at this very moment, his questions remain extremely relevant in our quest for truthful understanding of the situation. Welcome back. I am Ali at Code Pink, and you are listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York, WPFW in Washington D.C., and KPFT in Houston. In the second half of today's program, we will be discussing the Taiwan question, which is increasingly important as we hear links to what's happening in Ukraine with Taiwan. So, just for a little context, 50 years ago, on February 28, 1972. President Richard Nixon and Prime Minister Zhou Enlai issued the Shanghai Communique at the end of Nixon's historic visit to the People's Republic of China. Whilst acknowledging that the U.S. and China have separate and distinct social systems and foreign policies, both countries committed themselves to quote conduct their relations on the principles of respect for the sovereignty and territorial. Territorial integrity of all states, non-aggression against other states, non-interference in the internal affairs of other states, equal and mutual benefit and peaceful coexistence. End quote. This communique was created to advance opportunities for peace and prosperity, and remains a binding obligation of the U.S. government. Joining me is K.J. Noah. A journalist, political analyst, writer, and educator specializing in the geopolitics and political economy of the Asia Pacific region, he is a member of Veterans for Peace and Pivot to Peace. We are also joined by Anne Wright, who served 29 years in the U.S. Army/Army Reserves and retired as colonel. Anne was also a U.S. diplomat and served in many U.S. embassies, including in Nicaragua, Somalia, Uzbekistan, Sierra Leone, Micronesia, and Afghanistan. She resigned from the U.S. government in 2003 in opposition to President Bush's war on Iraq, and is a member of Veterans for Peace and Code Pink. So, welcome, KJ. Can you explain more about the history of what's happening in Taiwan right now? So, why is Taiwan important for us? <clears throat>、um, well, as Xiangyu stated, it is a province of China. Uh, and its majority, Hokkien and Hakka people, are culturally, demographically, socially, linguistically, religiously Chinese.、Um, there is a Taiwanese language that is sometimes referred to as Min Nan Hua,、uh, which means South of the River Min. And of course, if you look on a map, you'll see that the River Min is in Fujian Province.、Uh, 
Uh, if you look at the flags of the United Nations, you will search high and low for a Taiwanese flag because it's not recognized by the United Nations as a nation. In fact, UN Resolution 2758 determined that Taiwan is a part of the People's Republic of China, the PRC, uh, the US, Britain, Germany, etc., supported the resolution. But there are some countries or regions that recognize the Taiwanese government, uh, and they are St. Kitts and Nevis, Tuvalu, Marshall Islands, Eswatini, St. Lucia, Paraguay. These are relatively smaller countries. If you look on a map, you can see that that uh, recognition is very, very sparse. As a point of reference, these are the countries that recognize Palestine, which is still not received full status at the United Nations. You'll see that the settler colonial genocidal states and their uh, proxies are the countries that oppose Palestine's full recognition. The Taiwanese constitution claims all of mainland China as its territory. Uh, Article 4 says the territory of the Republic of China, according to existing boundaries, shall not be altered except by resolution of the National Assembly. And of course, the US itself has agreed that Taiwan is part of China. This is the 1972 Shanghai communique. Uh, and uh, they ag agree that there is but one China and that Taiwan is a part of China. The US government does not challenge that position. Uh, another part of the Shanghai communique, sometimes forgotten but equally important, is the U.S. says that it will uh, withdraw all U.S. forces and all military installations from Taiwan, it will progressively reduce its forces uh, as tension diminishes. And of course, the leader, the current leader, Tsai Ing-wen herself said, I am Chinese. So why do people think Taiwan is a separate nation? As Shang Yu pointed out, it has to do with Japanese colonization history, US intervention, and the creation of Taiwanese identity as a client state. Uh, and specifically, if we look at the 1895 Sino-Japanese War and the Treaty of Shimonoseki, essentially Taiwan was split off from China as war booty along with the Liaodong Peninsula, etc. Now, China cannot tolerate an independent and possibly belligerent Taiwan province because, not simply because of unfinished history, but because of the geostrategics involved. It is a direct threat to China. It is the cornerstone of the first island chain which is an encirclement of China of the Asia pivot. The enemy is directly on your doorstep. Uh, Taiwan is about 100 miles from the mainland, and there are islands that are less than three miles from the mainland. So this, uh, this, this is a tremendous force projection platform for the United States. And of course, the US has gained this all out, air sea battle, third offset, fourth offset, diffusion swarming automation, island hopping, subsurface warfare, standoff, etc. But the gist of it is that Taiwan 
is a dagger aimed at China, and it's the closest part of uh, any offensive force to the Chinese mainland. Of course, there is the unfinished history. Uh, the KMT took over Taiwan by force and initiated martial law, continued to shell and terrorize China from the island at the time when China did not have an air force or even a Navy, continues to try to undermine China. Uh, 1947, as Xiang Yu pointed out, there was the February 28th massacre, started with a vendor selling untaxed cigarettes. Uh, and then there was the wholesale slaughter of protesters. This is an article from the New York Times, March 28th. They say 10,000 uh, innocent civilians were slaughtered, completely unjustified, unarmed people whose intentions were peaceful. Uh, this also reminds me of George Floyd, who was also murdered uh, by the authorities for selling untaxed cigarettes. There was 1979 Kaohsiung incident, which resulted in the call of the death penalty for the leaders. Uh, Henley Liu in 1984 was a Taiwanese dissident living in the United States, and he was murdered by the Taiwanese government in his daily city suburban home. Uh, it's not unlike the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. And of course, who can forget Roberto Dobison? He was the right-wing death squad leader of El Salvador. He was trained in counterinsurgency in Taiwan, and there were 30,000 killed in these dirty wars. And of course, who can forget uh, Singman Ri? Singman Ri was also a genocide, genocidal president of South Korea, Park Chang-hee. All of these people looked up to Taiwan, allied with Taiwan. It was a kind of a, a base and an axis of a military dictatorship and terror uh, until the late 80s. So it has been a questionable actor on the international stage and for the mainland, if we take this history into account, it could pose a serious threat in particular because of its client state status with the United States. There's been a constant stream of propaganda and disinformation from Taiwan. For example, Taiwan requested information about COVID and then claimed that it had warned China about people to people transmission, human to human transmission when no such thing had happened, but it was instrumental in uh, disseminating this canard that China covered up or held back information. So this is the security dilemma. The US has plans to take down China. It is encircling China through the Asia pivot. Uh, Taiwan is the cornerstone, uh, and it also controls access to certain submarine channels that will determine China's capacity for deterrence. The Shanghai communique agreed that China, Taiwan is part of China. It agreed to demilitarize. At the current moment, the US has essentially broken all of its assurances. It has direct official contact. It continues to militarize. It specifically talks in its sense of Congress document about militarizing Taiwan. It is, of course, an encouragement towards independence 
uh, and of course, Chas Friedman, who was the US, current, uh, US ambassador, Chas Friedman, who was actually a translator at the time of the Shanghai communique, has said that the communique has essentially been salami sliced. There's nothing left of it. And therefore, we are potentially looking at a Ukraine-like situation. Now, China doesn't want war. It wants peaceful reunification. And as the US, the, uh, the Chinese ambassador to the US said, people on both sides of the Taiwan Straits are Chinese. We are compatriots. The last thing we should do is fight with compatriots. We will do our utmost to achieve peaceful reunification. But Taiwanese authority is working down the road towards independence emboldened by the United States. The Taiwan issue is the biggest tinderbox between China and the United States. If the Taiwanese authorities emboldened by the United States keep going down that road, it will most likely involve China and the United States in military conflict. This was one month ago, uh, the uh, Chinese ambassador to the United States. The Taiwanese don't want war. Majority have said they will not join in US-China war. Uh, the US is creating a situation where China may have no choice. Uh, US claims about self-determination and sovereignty are not credible as we have noted, but the US has stated that we inhabit a post-Westphalian order. That is to say, sovereignty is limited. It's contingent upon the dictates of the imperium, i.e. the US. And Taiwan is clearly an, a proxy for US interests in the area. I just want to say that uh, the Chinese uh, have a culture of peace. They say good iron is not used as nails, good men are not spent as soldiers. And it has the earliest recorded and continuous tradition of anti-militarism. Thanks so much for that detailed history, KJ. Anne, how do you approach these issues from your perspective? The, um, you know, 50 years ago, the communique was uh, signed between uh, Richard Nixon and Prime Minister Zhou Enlai. Uh, and it uh, brought 50 years of uh, reasonable cooperation among uh, the, the two countries. And today in 2020, we're here to update the communique in terms of our personal views on it. And uh, some of the things that were written about the communique in Pivot to Peace, a very excellent document that we want peace rather than promoting war, that we will all benefit by policies of cooperation with China. Uh, a best future will reduce the global menace of militarism and armed conflict, that we need to turn away from a path of confrontation. And here we go, right up there, this little sign of today, you know, no war on anyone. We need to reorient America's relationship with China in a positive construction direction, withdraw US troops from Taiwan, cease provocations, in the Taiwan Strait and let issues around Taiwan be resolved by the people of China on both sides of the strait. 
So here I am in Honolulu, Hawaii. It's the headquarters of the US Indo-Pacific Command, a military command that covers, it's the largest command and covers all the way from the west coast of the United States, all the way to India and all of the Pacific areas. And as you will see from a minute, this, this uh, military command really has a lot to do with the U.S. relationships uh, in the Pacific. And that's what I'm going to focus on, U.S. military relationships right now. Uh, you'll have other speakers that are going to talk specifically about Taiwan and other places, but I just wanted to focus on the military aspects of this. Uh, we do know that out in the Western Pacific right now, there are two U.S. carrier groups that are out there uh, with what they call freedom of navigation exercises, which really are... Uh, uh, military war maneuvers that are taking place in the front yard of China, the front yard being the South China Sea and the East China Sea. Uh, each one of these uh, carrier groups has 10 other vessels that are with it to include nuclear submarines. Uh, here's another uh, aspect of it. The United States has enticed uh, the Brits, the French, the Dutch, the Germans, the Australians to send in uh, ships and submarines also into that area of the world. So it is a very, very um, dangerous place because missteps, miscalculations, mistakes can occur. And all of a sudden, huge, huge implements of war uh, may collide with each other, may have confrontations with each other. So it's a very dangerous place. And we need to, as Americans, be tapping down this need for confrontation that our pol politicians seem to think not only on the on the sea but on the land last year in australia was a very very large land exercise with 17,000 military from australia the us canada japan korea new zealand france india and indonesia every other year uh, talisman saber is held uh, in australia australia is becoming quite the uh, us um, uh, ally in what's also called the uh, uh, what was it, the US, Australia, UK uh, submarine debacle where the US enticed uh, uh, Australia start buying US and British submarines versus French submarines. Uh, AUKUS, that's the name of it, AUKUS. Uh, another part of this uh, naval thing is a naval military war maneuver held right here in Hawaii, right offshores of the Hawaiian Islands. The U.S. Navy, it's, it's called Rim of the Pacific, and this, this year, it's held every two years also, the, the U.S. Navy expects 27 countries to send their uh, warships and aircraft. Up to 25,000 personnel will be out here in Hawaii, but uh, they expect uh, 42 ships, five submarines, and more than 170 aircraft to be a part of this. So this is the militarization, continued and expanded militarization uh, of the Pacific as the US has really started going after China. Uh, just a week and a half ago here in Hawaii, uh, the, our US Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, met with the foreign ministers of South Korea and Japan as they discuss threats coming from North Korea. North Korea certainly has been demanding attention from the Biden administration uh, by sending missiles up. And uh, the Biden administration really has not been paying much attention to it or not the attention that uh, Kim Jong-un feels should be. So he's sending missiles. And now, of course, there's the 
the publicity of what is considered to be a threat. Uh, I was in North Korea seven years ago, and we definitely need to talk to uh, the government there. The reason they developed uh, nuclear weapons is because the U.S. air 70 years after the end of the Korean War has never signed a peace treaty with them. And so they consider that the United States at any moment might uh, uh, attack, invade. Uh, so they developed uh, in opposition to uh, the U.S. ever signing uh, uh, a peace treaty and uh, the continual presence of up to 30,000 U.S. military in South Korea. So they developed nuclear weapons and these missiles that they continue to fire. Other places in the Pacific are getting tiny little islands like Palau, uh, which is just uh, uh, Guam, Palau, Federated States of Micronesia, tiny little island groups uh, that are now seeing the United States focus its attention on it. The U.S. Marine Corps has totally revamped its strategies and tactics, and now it's, it has given away all of its tanks. Uh, the tanks that you see right now that the Russians are using to invade Ukraine, well, the U.S. Uh, is having a new policy for the Western Pacific. No tanks out here, but instead, the Marines are going to go into small island groups, and they're going to have missiles that will be uh, uh, from these small island groups to go after any sea craft that that comes around the small island groups. Uh, the US is getting Japan to uh, uh, increase its uh, defense presence, uh, getting more uh, cost sharing going. Uh, other things are uh, big missile radar systems. Uh, here in Hawaii, they wanna put this massive radar system uh, uh, out on the little island of Kauai. It would be the largest building on the whole island it's uh, the amount of weight it would take to build this uh, would crumble all the bridges that are there. Uh, residents of, of Kauai do not want this, mainly because it doesn't work against threats. Uh, here in Oahu, where I live, we've already, we think, successfully pushed it off here, saying we don't want it, citizen activism being very important. But unfortunately, now the friends over in Kauai are having to do the same thing to say, no, we don't want it. Even the military doesn't want it, but one of our senators from Hawaii, Senator Macy Hirono, uh, uh, wants this uh, uh, nearly $2 billion uh, infrastructure project for the islands of Hawaii. Another aspect of the Marine switch in its strategy and tactics is that the Marine Corps, for the very first time, is going to start using assassin drones, Reaper drones, out here in the Pacific. And they have now assigned six assassin drones here on Oahu, six over in Guam. And you ask, well, who are they gonna go after? I mean, we're one of the most isolated island uh, ch uh, chains in the world. So what are they doing out here? Well, they're practicing so they can use them in the, in the Western Pacific. They, they can use them in Southeast Asia, on the Asian continent, on the Northeast Asian continent. So not only them, the US Air Force has had them and operated them in the Middle East, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, uh, Libya, uh, with the CIA, of course, Pakistan. Uh, now the Marine Corps is going to be operating them and they'll be operating them probably from these small islands on which they will use their own landing craft. They've said, we don't want you Navy guys uh, taking us around, we want our own ships. So the Marine Corps is trying to get ships, they're getting assassin drones, and 
uh, trying to make their name for themselves out here in the Western Pacific. Uh, let's just a little talk about uh, Taiwan, even though other people are going to be talking about it. Uh, November 15th, uh, 2001 virtual summit, Joe Biden told uh, Xi Jinping, he strongly opposes unilateral efforts to change the status quo or undermine the peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. Well, I agree with that. I, the, the status quo, it's going okay, except the U.S. continues to send in the top level diplomats it ever has in the last 50 years. So there, the U.S. is not uh, after the same status quo. It is actually uh, unbalancing it. And uh, the the fact that uh, the United every time the United States sends in another top level dip Democrat diplomat or uh, sends in more military armament, um, then the uh, Chinese come with armadas of aircraft right to the air defense zone of Taiwan. It's uh, to say, you know, this we thought we had an agreement, but no. So it's a very dangerous place these days, both on the uh, air and on the sea and on the land. And the bottom line for me, for, and I think for all of you all, no, war is not the answer to any of this. Thank you, Anne. Another great perspective on the question of Taiwan. And thank you so much both for taking the time to speak with us today on the issue of Taiwan, which is increasingly relevant as we commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Shanghai communique. So thank you to Colonel Anne Wright and KJ Noah for joining me and providing such wonderful insights. Looking forward, I want to highlight the work Code Pink has been doing on the pressing issue of Ukraine. An international anti-war Zoom meeting on Saturday, February 26th, attended by thousands and organized by Code Pink, Stop the War Coalition, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, and the No to NATO Network, agreed to an international day of anti-war action on Sunday, March 6th. For more information on Ukraine, the coalition, and past and future events, visit www.peaceinukraine.org. This has been a segment by the China's Not Our Enemy team. Thank you for listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WVAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, D.C., and KPFT in Houston. Peace and love. Goodbye. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Daddy Bush knows the Carlyle Group since years before been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say Cold War.